Well, tonight I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 13. And it is my intent to attempt to uh, complete our study of Hosea tonight. We'll see. Um, but that's my intent, and that would, that would bring us to chapters 13 and 14. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling, but he lifted himself up in Israel, and through Baal he became guilty and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols made from their silver according to their understanding, all of them the work of craftsmen. They are saying of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they will be like the morning cloud and like dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Yet I have been Yahweh your God since the land of Egypt, and you were to know no God, any God except me, and there is no Savior besides me. I myself knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, then they became satisfied. Indeed, they were satisfied, and their heart became raised up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs. And I will tear open the chest, enclosing their heart. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a beast of the field would rip them open. It is your ruin, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Where now is your king, that he may save you in all your cities? And your judges of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The pains of childbirth come upon him. He is not a wise son, for it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Though he is fruitful among the reeds, an east wind will come, and the wind of Yahweh coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every desirable article, Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. Return, O Israel, to Yahweh your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Take words with you and return to Yahweh. Say to him, forgive all iniquity and take what is good, that we may pay in full the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again our God to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds compassion. I will heal their turning away from me. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will flourish like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will go forth, and his splendor will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain, and they will flourish like the vine. His name of remembrance will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. 
Whoever is wise, so let him discern these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of Yahweh are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pause and pray one more time. Our God, the same God of Israel that is speaking here in the passage tonight, we thank you for every portion of your word. Thank you for the evenings you've given us in this portion, Hosea. We ask tonight once again that you would bless us, that you would speak to our hearts, and that you would warn us against pride and sin, and that in your love you would woo us to yourself. We thank you for the presence of your gracious and mighty spirit. May he minister even now, we pray. Amen. Well, we come tonight to the conclusion, as I've said, of this letter or this book, this minor prophet, though it's no minor prophecy. Again, Hosea is ministering a few hundred years actually before Zechariah. So this is when Judah is in the south and Israel, the Ephraim, if you will, the ten tribes are in the north and they have been rebellious. They have gone after uh, Baals and Asherahs and, and most egregious, they have made and fashioned two golden calves, placed them, one in Dan, one in Bethel, uh, very user-friendly, very close to where everybody can be. They, they really were experts in pragmatic religion, and they've blasphemed God and, and gone exactly against his commands. They have made graven images, and they have called them the calves, they've called the calves Yahweh. They've called the calves in Dan and Bethel none other than the covenant God of Israel, God has brought a lawsuit against unfaithful Israel. We saw that last Sunday night. Finally, here in Hosea's ministry and in the record of it, we, we find a, a very moving and passionate plea on the behalf of God towards his people. And in chapter 13, we, we find a God reasoning with his people. Um, he's, he's warning them. He's reasoning with them. And he's trying to show them the the nature of sin, and in particular the sin of idolatry. That was their chief sin. In reality, it, it always is our chief sin. We may not have little bales or asherahs sitting on our mantles, but we too have the tendency, like Israel of old, to love and trust in other entities to be to us what only God can be to us. For example, all the way down in chapter 14, verse 3, as part of Israel's future repentance, they say, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again our God to the work of our hands. There's a little introduction to what idolatry might look like. They were in danger. Instead of turning to God, they turned to a powerful world, a worldly power. They, they just simply went pragmatic and they thought that they could use Assyria for their protection. Instead of they, in, in so doing, they dishonored God. God had promised to be their God and provide for them. Or they, um, they rode horses. Now you say, what's, what's, what's the deal? Does God have something against horses? Of course not. God made horses, right? And boy, did he do uh, something amazing when he made horses. I, 
I, I don't know much about horses, but on the rare occasion I'm around them, I think they're pretty amazing creatures, don't you? And so what was the deal with horses? Well, Israel was given in the law a command, the kings, that they were not to accumulate many horses. Why? God wanted to perpetually impress upon his people that their power and their strength was not in their military might, not in their horses, but in God himself. And then they, they had a tendency to make things and then bow before them. And we say, well, that's so, that's so old, those people, those, those ignorant people of old. But really, if you think about it, you can fashion your own righteousness and call it your God. You can trust in your own goodness. You can trust in your own ability, your own resources, your own connections. You can trust in fate. You can roll the dice, whatever it may be. If we're not trusting in and worshiping the one and true living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are committing idolatry. And every other sin falls out from idolatry then, because if the one true God is not your God, you're turning away from his laws, and so you'll start to commit the various other sins. Idolatry is at the root of Israel's issue of old, and it is ever at the root of our issue. And so look with me in chapters, chapter 13 at uh, four reasons why we ought to flee idolatry. God is reasoning with his people here. First of all, in verses 2 and 3, idolatry is dumb. It's just dumb, stupid. This is what God points out. And he's not trying to be demeaning. He's speaking the truth. God is truth. He speaks the truth. And he's recounting in, uh, in verses 1 through 3, um, Israel's pride. They worship the Baals, verse 1, and they made molten images, and chief among those molten images that incensed God and made God angry was the calves. In verse 2, they made these two golden calves, and they would say with religious fervor, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. They kissed these golden calves. Now, the problem is when you worship calves, you start to become like a calf. Now, calves are cute. I've seen them. And again, I, I tend to, there's two ways you can drive here from our house to church. And I tend to go cross-country road because over cross-country road, there's a farm with some cute little calves. And uh, poor little guys are going to end up being hamburgers. But, but they're cute when they're calves. And uh, I like going by and see them. And they look up at me. And, you know, uh, I, I like, I, they're, they're cute little fellas. But I got to say, they're probably not the most bright. I mean, you know, I know they, they know where the food is and uh, they figure out how to stay warm and so forth. But, you know, calves, as far as uh, I don't know that they're that intelligent. Right. Um, and so if you start worshiping calves, you start to become like a calf. We become like what we worship. Scriptures teach us. And so the people are becoming dumb, stupid and sensitive. And, and the reason is because if you worship these idols, these idols are passing. These, these gods are no gods. They're as permanent as a morning cloud, verse 3, or a dew which soon appears. I mean, a dew on a hot, hot August, uh, first or second week of August is going to fade in the morning if it's there at all. And like chaff which is blown away up on a threshing floor, a strong wind would be blowing and uh, we were down recently visiting my parents uh, and my brother, and uh, they uh, have houses next to each other up on a, a ridge uh, about uh, 
a thousand feet or so, I think it is. I could be wrong on that. But anyways, it just comes, it just comes right up and it has this amazing, I mean, unbelievable view of the Blue Ridge Parkway, and which is about 10 miles away. And between the Blue Ridge Parkway and their little ridge is nothing but horse fields and beautiful pastures. It's beautiful. But when the wind blows, oh, does it blow. And my brother last year was trying to get, he built this house and trying to get some grass seed. You know, he wanted a lawn and wanted to get that planted. And so he got some, some soil and he thought it was some pretty decent soil. And he spread it all around. He probably worked days and days and days on it. And then one storm came up. And you know what happened to all that dirt that was on top of that Virginia red clay and all that seed? Blowing in the wind. <laughs> All of it, all of it, gone. That wind came up, that top, there's not one bitten piece of it. It's just the entirety of it. And I'm not talking like a little patch. It's a pretty good-sized lawn. All of it blowing in the wind. And God is saying here that our idols and we who insist on worship idols will be blown away like chaff up on a hill, blown away in the wind, or like smoke from a chimney. I've got a little stove. I'm so happy I uh, picked... Uh, Worked on a, a wood stove and uh, in the barn I have and uh, just hooked up some of the piping. And so Carissa knows now when I'm up there uh, because she can see the smoke coming out of the little chimney up there. But if you know one thing about uh, wood smoke, it might smell good, but it doesn't stay around very long. You look at it coming out of the chimney and there it goes out and blows away. And that's about as strong and as permanent as our idols are. Those other things that we trust in besides God. And sadly, those who worship idols insist on it. That's how permanent they are. They may seem strong. They may seem impressive. So in summary, idolatry, God's saying, is just dumb. Sin is dumb. Idolatry is dumb. Just think about it. What good does it do us? Secondly, in verses 4 through 6, idolatry is dishonorable. Dishonorable. Verses 4 through 6, God points out, I have been Yahweh your God. There's no savior besides God. He's the one who cared for Israel in the wilderness. He cared for them. And yet when, they, when he provided for them, when he gave them what they longed for, when he brought them into the land, verse 6, their heart became raised up and they forgot him. How dishonorable is that? And oh boy, do we have this tendency or maybe I speak for myself. We're in, a, we're in hard straits. We're in a time of need. We feel... I don't know, maybe you feel lonely. Maybe you have a need, you feel uh, a financial need. Maybe you were very, very sick or someone you, you know in your family was very, very sick and you felt very urgent about it and you sought the Lord urgently and, and, and the Lord was good to you and he blessed you and he provided for your need and, and maybe it's been a while since you've had a need and instead of it creating fervent love in us for the Lord, we've become rather self-dependent and proud dishonors God and uh, what one of us doesn't know that sin to dishonor the one who loved us and gave himself up for us to forget him it's not right idolatry is dishonorable again our worship of God at the end of the day we worship God not because it's good for us we worship God because it's right and because he's worthy of honor and when we worship God, it is good for us because we were made for God in his image. Idolatry is dumb. Idolatry is dishonorable. Thirdly, in verses 7 through 11, idolatry is dangerous. Dangerous. 
downright dangerous. Because God is God and because he is true and because he cannot lie, he will not give his glory to another, as the prophet Isaiah would say. Uh, as he said through the prophet Isaiah, God will not give his glory to another. And so when we persist in idolatry and our self-reliance in our pride, we may not even know it, but we set ourselves against God. And that's just a really, 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 really bad idea to go toe-to-toe with God. God says, and Israel persisted. It's not like at their first sin, God, uh, you know, jumped on them like a lion, tearing them to pieces. He was gracious generation after generation after generation. But as they persisted in their idolatry, idolatry is personal and all sin is personal. All sin is in a personal affront to God. It's not a mistake. It's not an oops. All sin is ultimately against God. Like David said, against you, O Lord, I have sinned and against you only. So he persists in that personal sin against God, contend with God, dishonor God and God will start to become like your enemy and you I you know I don't want to encounter a bear robbed of her cubs I I'm not afraid of black bears when I'm out in the woods I know we have some right uh right around our house um I'm not too worried about it except maybe if I happen to come upon a, a mama bear with her cubs I, I it'd be bad I, I wouldn't like that idea because um, I do not want to mess with Mama Bear. And uh, worse than that, I, I, I wouldn't want to be in parts of Africa where to this day, if you're walking out in the fields, you might find yourself kitty food. And I don't mean little kitties. I mean big kitties, lions. It's still happening today. They will kill people, and they have no problem just ripping open your chest cavity and eating your heart and leaving your carcass pretty gruesome I know but God is trying to get the attention of Israel if you continue on in this way then I'm going to become like your enemy I'm going to become like a a mama bear robbed of her cubs or a lioness defending her cubs notice verse 9 God says it is to your ruin O Israel that you are against me against your help don't want to be against God don't want to be against God and no one can help you against God. Israel's king couldn't help them against God. God says, where's your king? Is your king going to help you? Your king's nowhere to be found. I, I've removed him. And so idolatry is dumb, dishonorable, and dangerous. Fourthly, in chapter 13, it's destructive. Verses 12 through 16, destructive. Um, very destructive or, or dangerous um, God here is likening them to being a foolish uh, little little baby. Of course, a little baby has no control um, and is not responsible. But you know, it's not a good idea to uh, for a, when a, a, a baby is is being born to hang out in the uh, birth canal for too long. It's uh, can be deadly, as we know. So God is using this painful image to say, hey, you don't want to stay here in your sin. You don't want to be bound up in it. But they have been for so long. 
And because of that, the hammer blow is coming. God is going to use the Assyrians to come and destroy Samaria, verse 16. Samaria was the capital city of Israel in the north, and so they are going to be held accountable. And in 722 BC, Assyria came and utterly decimated Samaria, brought the hammer blow. And the Assyrians were known for their violence. Um, unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, we have uh, pictures from Assyrian conquests when they conquered the Israelites and other peoples. And some of the scenes they have on the, um, the walls that would have been in the, in the palaces of the Assyrian, various Assyrian kings, they have the Assyrian uh, soldiers, and you can, you can tell by the way that um, their beard is and so forth. Archaeologists, you can tell who's who. And you see Israelites, and you know what the Israelites look like. And unfortunately, you see some of the Israelites impaled, um, uh, being skinned alive. It was uh, brutal. And God had warned them, and warned them, and warned them, and warned them. And the Assyrians came and committed these kinds of things that are hard even for us to think about. It was destructive. Idolatry ultimately is, and and being against God is destructive, and it is deadly. Interesting, isn't it, in the middle of this most ugly and awful warning is this verse 14 God is going to give them over to the judgment and and it is going to be awful. But in verse 14, isn't it amazing? Did you, you, if you were reading Isaiah 14, would you like the Apostle Paul see here a glimmer of hope? After all, this is what he quotes from uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your thorns? Or death, where is your sting? He's quoting from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. Did you pick up on that? That's, that's, this is the verse. So even in the midst of this most severe judgment is a little indication that God and God alone can and will at the appropriate time overturn the death penalty. And he will save Israel so that they will be able to defy death. Incredible little glimmer of gospel promise there in the middle of this severe judgment. So idolatry is dumb, dishonorable, dangerous, destructive, and deadly. But praise be to God who can give us the victory over death. And how does he do that? Let's turn now, as we turn now to chapter 14. He does that by his sovereign grace. By his sovereign grace. God is not done with Israel, as we've learned. He will have his bride. He he does not save every Jewish man and woman, but the scriptures are insistent that he will save a remnant. And we learn in the New Testament that he began with a remnant of Jews, and in the last days he will redeem a remnant. 
But what is true of Israel is true of all of us. All of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. Jew and Gentile, all of us are prone to idolatry. None of us have hope of saving ourselves. Israel, in their stupidity and in their stubbornness and in their pride, is, are the, is the picture, Israel is the picture of our sin and our stubbornness. So how is it that we can be saved? Well, first, in verse 1, by God's gracious invitation, by God's gracious invitation. See this verse 1? Think of how, dis, how much Israel's dishonored God. And yet, look at this grace. Return, O Israel, to Yahweh your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. How gentle is that? How kind is that? The invitation by God, return to me, come to me. They, they've worshipped the Baals. They've been like Hosea's wife off committing adultery. And God says, return to me, come to me. What a gracious invitation. And not only does God give the gospel invitation of repentance and faith in him, and now we know in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, but with that gracious invitation is God's gracious provision. God's gracious provision. Look what he says in verse 2. Take words with you and return to Yahweh. God even gives them the words to pray. It's so kind, so gracious. I mean, they're, they're so lost in their sin. What do you, what do you say? How do you, how do you turn to God? What do you do? And, and God actually gives them the prayer. This in verse uh, 2 and 3 is one of several prayers in the Old Testament that are prophesied of Israel that they will pray in the last days. In the last days before Christ comes again to this earth, this will be one of the prayers of repentance that Israel will pray. It will be. Along with um, when they look on him whom they have pierced and they mourn for him, as Zechariah says, especially in Isaiah uh, chapters 64, is it? 65, these prayers of repentance on behalf of, on behalf of Israel and Judah. They'll finally realize their sin. And even Isaiah 53, that is a confession of Israel in the last days when it finally, finally clicks. Where do they come up with that kind of material? God gives it to them. God not only invites us to salvation and to repentance, but God graciously grants us the provision for that. And in this case, he gives them a prayer. Take words with you and return to Yahweh. And he say to him, forgive all iniquity. And of course, this isn't just a rote prayer. So if you just rattle this off, it's good. But they're so broken over their sin, they don't even know what to say. And God, in his kindness, gives them a prayer to pray. And it's beautiful. Forgive our iniquity. Take what is good that we may pay in full the fruit of our lips. In other words, they give themselves to God as their slaves, as his slaves, rightly so. They, they, they turn from Assyria and every other dependence. They turn from their dependence upon their own resources, their horses. And they, they confess the stupidity of their idolatry. Nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. And they confess the rightness of God 
that rather than God looking around and being impressed with those who are, have attained status and by their own power managed to somehow make something of themselves, they confess the rightness that their self-reliance is, is folly and that God is the one who grants compassion to the orphan. And we think of the many orphans there are right now in Israel and in Gaza, and it's heartbreaking. But God is the God of the little and the weak and the feeble and the humble. His gracious invitation, God's gracious provision. And then we learn finally in verses 4 through 8 about God's delight and pleasure. His delight and pleasure in their repentance. And God, when, when we repent and when Israel and Judah repent in the last days, he's not going to, you know, as it were, stand there with his arms crossed and say, you know, well, we'll see. It'll be like the, the story that our Lord told about the father of the prodigal son. And God will rejoice. And with the slightest indication of true contrite repentance from the depths of the heart and faith in God and in his promises, God says, I will heal their turning away from me. That's what I want to be healed of, by the way. I'm sure you too, more than anything else. The older I get, I got some physical problems. Overall, as I was playing the piano, I was thinking, man, I got to get some new glasses again. I can't, <laughs> I can't see these notes. Eyesight, uh, you know, just the reality of the body breaking down. And some of you have a lot worse. Um, I, I'd like to be healed of those things, but what I want to be healed of most of all and I'm sure you too, I want to be healed of my propensity and pattern of turning away from the Lord. What a wonderful thing that God gives a new heart. And that's what, remember, God covenanted through Jeremiah that that's what God will do to Israel and Judah, give them a new heart, and he does that for all of us. He will heal our turning away. He will love us freely. He's not compelled. He loves his people freely. He'll remove his anger and he'll be like dew to Israel. You see the dew on the grass this time of year? And no matter how bad your lawn is, how many weeds there are this time of year because of that dew that comes, whatever patches of grass there are, they're starting to do a little better because of that dew that comes every morning, gives life. God says Israel will flourish in the last days. This is like what we're learning in Zechariah. Take root like the cedars of Lebanon, those massive trees up in the high mountains of Lebanon that have deep roots and are strong, beautiful trees. They'll be like a fruitful, like an olive tree. They'll be fragrant like the cedars of Lebanon. They will, Israel will one day flourish like a, an abundant vine. God delights in the repentance of his people. And he's not done with Israel and Judah, and he will renew them in the last days, and he is and will renew us. And so in closing, in verses 8 and 9, finally God wraps up the ministry of Hosea by issuing this very simple, short, 
appeal. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? Very interesting there. It's a reminder that if we are those who confess Christ, that when we are involved in idolatry of various kinds, we involve God in it because his name is on us, his spirit is in us. And so God doesn't want anything to do with idolatry. He wants he wants our loyalty. He wants our, our singular love. He is passionate about not having any comp- comp competitors. He, he's really not good with just kind of being on the shelf. He's really not okay with just being a bumper sticker on your vehicle. He really doesn't care about your posts on Facebook. I mean, he's really serious He wants your heart and he wants the totality of your being for himself. He wants your love and he wants mine. And he will answer us, verse 8, and look after us. Where's God? He's looking after you. He's looking after you. And he will cause us to be fruitful in Christ. In summary, verse 9. So... Make a decision. Wisdom or folly. Whoever's wise, discern these things. Think about it. Whoever's discerning, think about it. Know these things. Because the ways of Yahweh are right, and the righteous will walk in them. That means that our day-to-day living reflects the reality that there's only one God, only one Lord, Jesus Christ. We seek to know him and please him and obey him. The righteous will walk in his ways, but transgressors will stumble in them. Not might, will, does end on a sobering note, but we don't want to transgress. May God cause us to be among the righteous who walk in Yahweh's ways. Let's pray. So may it be so, our God, we pray. And we pray earnestly. We do revere you and we do love you. And we are in awe of you, O God, you who are like a wall of fire around your people. We love what we're learning about you, Lord Jesus, our warrior king, how you fight to defend your people. So we are in awe of you. But, O God, see our hearts tonight that we're humbled by our record of sin We're grieved over the remaining sin in our hearts, the stupid pride and self-dependence that's still there. And so we uh, are not ashamed to say that we humble ourselves and desperately ask that you would create in us a clean heart, O God. Put a right spirit within us. May you cause us to hear your gracious invitation that we would repent not just once, but we would be daily turning from sin, turning toward the Lord. We ask this not only that we may rejoice, but we ask this above all that you are God, may receive the honor and glory that you are so due. In your son's name we pray, amen.